You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Brandon. How are you doing today? Hey, mate. Going well. How's things in Melbourne? Yeah, I mean, uh, not. I mean, good. Actually, and bad. that's that's yeah. It's a sensitive, that's a bad leading question, it's a, isn't it? It's a sensitive topic. I wasn't actually thinking about that until you said the word Melbourne, and then I, I remembered what's about to happen. But um, yeah, just moved into a new place, so that's really exciting, obviously. But um, where, for those who are not aware, for those outside of the Melbourne or Australia bubble, uh, Victoria is probably going to be going into another lockdown for coronavirus, which is uh oh. Not good. <laughs> How many people have, have got it? Uh, there was 11 cases today. So, oh, I think there's no. 34 active cases or something in uh, right. Victoria. So, that's disappointing. I, th- I think we're, I think they're actually announcing it right now as we speak. So, I don't really know oh. what's going to happen. But after I get off this recording, I'll, I'll probably know. Um, mm. But it looks very likely, which is kind of disappointing. But um, yeah. at least I got my new place to, to entertain me while I'm in lockdown. <laughs> Yeah. How's that going? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I, um, I still have a bit of a, a video studio that I do want to set up that I haven't done yet. Um, yep. But uh, in the process of, uh, of doing that. So maybe in a few weeks time, there'll be a new set for, um, for, for my YouTube channel and then hopefully a place as well where we can do some podcasting when you come down yes. next time. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, that 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 will be awesome. If you build out that studio, that set space, I am definitely coming. Yeah, I'll come. I'll come a lot because I tell you what. Um, <laughs> side note: I <laughs> bought a Victorian membership to the Port Adelaide Footy Club, so every every time they oh. play in Melbourne, I want to come down and go to the game. So wow. we may as well. Obviously, the games are on uh, are on a weekend. I'll come on like Thursday or something. We'll meet mm. up and we'll do a podcast. Definitely, That'd be sweet. Yeah, I think the way that I want to set up my video studio is so that it can be used as both just my YouTube for recording YouTube videos and then also so that there's kind of a two chair setup, kind of like a a typical video podcast so that we can can record in that way too. Yeah, that would be awesome. um, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'll obviously be doing lots of experimenting and uh, and designing. So, uh, we'll we'll kind of see how it uh, turns out, but I'm very excited for that. That's a Mm. bit of a project for me to work on for, for the next few weeks. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, in terms of what we've got, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, we've got a lot yeah, of different things. Lot. We've got some stuff on Bitcoin, some Michael Burry stuff, um, ARK. Amazon has been doing a, a lot of uh, bidding and purchasing as always. So, we've got a few things to talk about there. And uh, oh, speaking of Amazon as well, Jeff Bezos is uh, has been uh, topped for being the world's richest man. But uh, well, Ooh. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the details of all of that uh, today. But uh, first, I'll uh, run us through our sponsor for today. So yeah. today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. And it will allow you to track all of the different types of gains. So capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, it will do all of those calculations for you. Currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies. Uh, and then the main reason why 
I've personally been using it over the past four or five years is when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to easily work out things such as your capital gains, dividend income, and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. And you can also use that link to get four months of a yearly subscription if you want to sign up to some of their paid features. Um, and that is of particular importance if you're in Australia or New Zealand at the moment because uh, tax time is upon us very soon in about a month's time, mm. uh, the end of the financial year. So um, if you want to have your portfolio taxes all in order and easily uh, calculated for you to save you a bit of time and a bit of money at tax time, then make sure you head over to ShareSite and check it out. Mm. Yep, absolutely. Man, mm. we got to start thinking about that, don't we? Yeah. Tax time, here we go. My least favorite time of the year. Yeah, it's, it's just a it's just a pain. It's just something that you know you have to do that you just really don't want to do. Yeah. I mean, we just want to make YouTube videos and we want to run our businesses and, and this sort of stuff. And then it's just uh, uh, all the tax stuff related to it. It's just it's just frustrating. But, you know, it's important. You got to do it. <laughs> um, otherwise, society falls apart. <laughs> You've got to do it. <laughs> no taxes. And all of a sudden, those potholes don't get filled and <laughs> Medicare gets privatized. Mm. <laughs> And all of a sudden, uh, Australia turns to crap. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, talking about tax, I read a report this morning that uh, Facebook only paid, I think, $20 million in tax in Australia. Oh, my gosh. They have a... Because uh, how they set up their business is similar to Google is they have a they have a subsidiary that operates in Singapore, I think. Singapore. Um, which is uh, where they get really <laughs> low tax rates. And oh, uh, Singapore. they do something like the Singapore subsidiary buys the ad spaces from the Australian subsidiary or something uh, very, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very, very, very... Uh, <laughs> You know, questionable. Very much a roundabout way. <laughs> yeah. So they actually generated, I think, $700 million in ad revenue in Australia. But um, according to what was taxable on their Australian uh, report uh, was about $170 million or something. So, wow. Uh, I just thought that was an interesting thing I saw this morning. Yeah. Um, but it uh, is an, yeah. Yeah. It is an interesting argument. Um, and and, and uh, I guess, obviously, with us being pretty young, the main argument we hear is that, oh, we need to raise the corporate tax rate. You know, we need to tax, you know, corporations more, which, you know, I, I agree with in, in a lot of aspects. But it's mm. interesting when you see it play out. It's like, well, actually, if you run a, you know, for example, Singapore, if you run a very low tax rate for these businesses, then more businesses come to you. Mm. So, it, it, I, like, I don't, I don't know the answer, obviously, um, but it would be very interesting to see um the balance between the the tax rate that you know the corporate tax rate versus the actual dollar amount of tax revenue you collect from businesses yeah because i guess obviously as a country you just want the highest dollar amount of tax revenue you just yes. want the, you you want to make the most you want to generate the most <laughs> revenue um, so, I, yeah, I'm not quite sure. Obviously, I don't know very much about tax. That's not really my thing. But uh, it would be very interesting to know the numbers behind what works best. I guess it's like almost it's, – it's like a competition. It's competitive, you know. <laughs> Obviously, Singapore's winning. The Singapore <laughs> – uh, you know, Singapore's generating tax revenue that really should have been Australia's tax revenue. So, yeah, that's interesting. It, it is very interesting. And then there's also differences between individual, how individuals react to tax changes in corporations. So, corporations mm. are much more sensitive 
to change because it's very easy for them, especially if they're a $100 billion company to move a subsidiary to a new location that has the best yeah. tax rate. Whereas an individual is far less likely to uproot their family, for example, if there is a change in, you know, if, if Singapore lowers the personal income tax rate, there's not that many mm. Australians that are thinking, wow, I can save 5% here if I move to Singapore. Um, whereas businesses are thinking yeah. like that because they want to save every single dollar. So it is a very interesting dynamic tax mm. and uh, how different countries choose to deal with it. Places like Singapore, where they have like no company tax rates in some, uh, I think they have no company tax rate. Um, wow. And then there's uh, other countries that, you know, will have an 80% tax rate at their top bracket for people earning over yeah. a certain amount. So. Yeah, that's crazy. It is. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. Uh, Ireland, I think, had the best tax rates up until a couple of years ago. So, all of the companies had um, their payments going through Ireland um, and then Ireland changed their taxes. So, everyone moved to Singapore. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, yeah. I, to, to be fair, I actually know a, a young guy that's done very well for himself um, that is considering moving to Singapore. Wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I don't think he's too disadvantaged from the tax rate in Australia now, but I think maybe in, in the next couple of years he might be. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's considering it. I mean, if it's like, well, if you, if you change, if you move to Singapore and you can save, I don't know, what if, what if you went and you saved a couple million dollars a year in tax? And that's a, that's a substantial amount. That's a life changing amount of money right there. So, mm. you know. But uh, yeah, obviously, yeah, it's a it's a sticky subject. Mm, I, I just All right, should we get? S- yeah, yeah. I, I just looked up the rate before. I just wanted to correct myself. Um, they yeah. do have a company tax rate. It's just seventeen percent though, so it's extremely right, it's low. Quite low. Yeah. No, but quite we quite um, low. You're right. We should uh, we should get into some of the stories we have to talk about mm. today. One of them, of course, we'll talk about first is Michael Burry has been yeah. uh, making a lot of bets, and we spoke about his short against Tesla last week. I think right. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, I just wanted to chuck this in because, yeah, last week we focused on um, the Tesla short a lot. So we won't talk about that much today. Um, but there was kind of two big takeaways out of his 13F filing or Scion Asset Management's 13F filing. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a big one was the that we actually saw that bet against Tesla. Um However, another one which you kind of, if you read between the lines, you can you can understand what he's trying to do. He's actually betting on inflation, and he's Ooh. doing that by betting against bonds. Mm. So he he definitely he he definitely the bets he's set up are, are quite a uh, quite a bet that he we're going to see big inflation um, over the next little while. So I'll just run you through what he's what he's done. Yeah, he's firstly bought. A lot of option positions. So, for example, he's bought put options on the twenty-plus year Treasury bond ETF. So he's betting that the the twenty-plus year Treasury bond ETF will go down. Mm. Um, but then on the flip side, he's found some inverse ETFs. So inverse ETFs, remember they're 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 the ones that are constructed using various derivatives mm. to try and achieve the opposite of something. Right. Um, so what he's bought, for example, is the ProShares Ultra Short Twenty Plus Year Treasury, and for that one, that investment that that uh, that inverse ETF goes up two times whatever that long term bond index goes down. Wow. 
So it's it's that investment is structured to go up if bonds go down. So he's betting on that investment. So he's bought call options in quite a few in three different leveraged inverse ETFs, which are betting against which go up as bonds go down. So hopefully, hopefully I've explained that some somewhat accurately, somewhat decently, so that people can understand. Yeah, that was a really Um, good explanation. And I think so. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. No. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think there's really like two things to understand as well as to like why these bets on treasuries would be an inflation bet. I get a bet a bet that inflation is coming. There's kind of two thing two ways in which inflation impacts interest rates. The first is if inflation does increase above the rate that and uh, say a bond is offering, so a return that the bond is offering, that can incentivize people to sell that bond because let's say if inflation is 5% and the bond is earning you 1%, there's very little reason for you to hold onto that bond. Mm. But the other rate reason is also that if inflation does rise, the Federal Reserve is likely to raise their official cash rate the Fed yep. rate. And uh, when that rate goes up, it makes older bonds that have lower rates basically worthless because why yeah. would you hold on to an old bond earning 1% when you could go get a fresh one from the Fed that's earning you 3 or 5% or something like that. So exactly, um, yeah. it is interesting. And, and a few of these, it is, it's fascinating that a, a couple of these inverse ETFs are kind of like two times leveraged or or multiple times leveraged, which yeah. um, creates a... He, he's a clearly very, very bearish on um, on different types of long-term treasuries. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's very interesting because he's made... He's really amplified the bet. So, first of all, He's amplified it once in the fact that he's he's using options instead of just taking, you know, a long position, a standard long position in these. So options essentially can amplify your returns for the same amount of cash deployed if you get it right. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, he's bought options on leveraged inverse ETFs, which amplify the effect of whatever they're betting against. So he's bought two, no, sorry, he's bought one two times leveraged inverse ETF on the long-term bonds. Then he's bought two inverse ETFs that are <clears throat> that are three times leveraged, which is just insane, <laughs> betting a- again against the, the long-term bonds. So he's amplifying the bet using options, and then he's amplifying the amplified bet <laughs> by using leveraged inverse ETFs, mm. which is just bonkers. Uh, and I guess, um, I guess in a way, it's partially necessary if you are betting either way with treasuries and you want to make a significant return because they don't really move all that much yeah, over time. Yeah, that's a good point. They move like you know a, a very small amount in terms of the mm. price of these treasuries. Um, so I, I guess that kind of makes sense in a way. Whereas if you're betting on a stock that is a high growth company, it could very well move very quickly just by owning it directly. And if you chucked a call option on top of that, plus a, as some kind of leverage, it would be an, in, it, the, the amount that it would move would be in, insanely volatile. So yeah. I guess that comes into consideration <laughs> as well. <laughs> could yeah, you imagine no, that's uh, a good point. taking a position against Tesla and you, you're doing a call option on Tesla shares and you're using debt to do it? <laughs> yeah, and it's like a it's like a leveraged inverse of whatever te- it's mm. like three times the inverse of what Tesla does. It's like oh my gosh, <laughs> Tesla's gone up ten percent in a day and now I'm down thirty <laughs> percent. Oh my gosh, that would be insane. Oh god. Um, 
But there's one more thing to kind of understand about, well, that I think there is, there's one more thing that I think we should factor in about this bet mm. from Michael Burry. Um, and that is that the nature of these inverse ETFs is that they're not, while we call them inverse ETFs, they're not actually very much like regular exchange traded funds at all, right. really. They're, they're kind of stuck on there as a label so that you can understand kind of how you know, the, the 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 outcome that they achieve, but they're not really like ETFs. They're actually constructed, these investment vehicles, using various derivatives. So they're actually built using derivatives to make sure that they achieve the exact opposite of something mm. uh, or the exact opposite of something times two or times three. Um, but because they're constructed to do this, they, they get constructed to do this on a daily basis. Um, and then at the end of the day, they get reshuffled, they get rejigged so that the next day, when they come out, they get the exact opposite again. Um, but this this is the daily rebalancing that I refer to. This daily rebalancing means that if you hold these inverse ETFs for a long period of time, like a few years, you will pretty much always underperform. Huh. Um, and that underperformance is because of the daily rebalancing. Right. Um, so, so what people tend to do is they tend to be used by uh, traders a lot. Um, and I can't say that I have any experience in actually investing or, or trading these, uh, but it seems as though people only u- usually hold them for like a few days at a time or a couple weeks, but, but not really like months or years on end. Mm. Um, so, that kind of brings me around to the, the fact that this is a 13F filing for Q1 of 2021. And these were open positions on the 31st of March, um, 2021. Mm. So, is there 31 days in March? I'm just trying to remember Yeah, now. yeah, there is. Yeah, it's okay, good. <laughs> My sister's birthday um, is the 31st of March, so I remember oh, that Oh, okay, that's how you know. Um, but that, that, le- that leads me to say, well, it's now, what, late May. We're almost mm. into June. Yeah. So, there's a question mark over whether Michael Burry actually has these bets still open, uh, even at the time that we yeah. got the 13F filing, he might have already been out of those positions in the in the leveraged inverse ETFs. We just don't know. Yeah. Um, it, so, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. It could very well be that he wanted to make some kind of play on the announcement of those inflation numbers we just got recently where we're starting to see the comparison from last year. And maybe it was a, a short-term bet that inflation was going to be far worse um, than people anticipated. And that would cause some kind of panic in the treasury markets. Um, and we may continue to see that. I mean, we're, we're only, how many months have we seen of, of that year over year data right now? We're in, we've only seen one, I think, or maybe two. One. March was a little bit, but March, it kind of started to happen midway through March, I think. So we've really seen mm. April and I think May, June, July is actually where it's going to get the worst. So it could be related to that. Um, that Burry expects that things are going to, that inflation is going to be really, really bad in the short term, um, and people are going to kind of panic about that. So, yeah, um, yeah, we we may very well see that, and that kind of makes sense with his bet against Tesla as well, because Tesla, being a very high growth company, um, very high multiple in terms of um, its valuation, v- will be very, very sensitive to inflation news and interest rates. So um, all of this kind of ties into relating to inflation. Really any bet, I guess, against treasuries or against high growth companies or really just against the market in general would be a bet um, 
on inflation right now. Um, yeah. So very very interesting. Mm. But yeah, so yeah, that's that's uh, that's what I thought I would bring up about Michael Burry. That was a, actually a very interesting thirteen F. I kind of glanced over it and I was like, eh. Is there really that much to talk about? And then I really sunk my teeth in it. I was like, okay, Whoa. there actually is some stuff to talk about. Um, but yeah, anyway, should we move on? What's uh, what's going on with Amazon? Yeah, yeah, I've got a I've got a little bit to talk about with Amazon. Amazon's uh, always in the news for something, but uh, this True. week was uh, fairly interesting. And there's a couple of related stories here around their streaming service, Amazon Prime Video. Um, so the main headline here this week is that Amazon has made an investment. They've purchased, they've acquired uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer MGM which is a, uh, a film studio uh, for 8.45 billion US dollars or 10.9 billion Australian dollars. So, uh, this is by no means a small, <laughs> a small acquisition. This is a massive acquisition and of course mm. aims to improve Amazon's TV focused streaming service, which is Amazon Prime Video. So, mm. um, they of course have a ton of movies on there as well, but um, for the most part, they've kind of been honing in on having a really wide um, television show catalog and mm. acquiring MGM kind of um, fits right into that. So, um, in terms of the MGM library, what assets they're acquiring, they're going to be getting about 4,000 movies and 17,000 television shows, which is uh, wow. a lot of content. Um, that's a lot. 17,000 television Holy shows. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's one thing. I actually don't... How many TV shows... I guess this is 17,000 television show episodes. Um, I, but, uh, yeah, maybe. I, I think it's 17... I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Seven, I'm, no, no, what, 17,000 TV shows? I think that's what it is. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's oh, what gosh. it is. Who, who knows? But that kind of makes me wonder how many movies or TV shows are on Netflix or on <laughs> Disney Plus. Oh, it seems man. like I'm running into the same ones over and over again, but there must be just thousands. Yeah, I'm trying to, um, anyway. I'm trying to find, but uh, that's all right. But yeah, MGM. That's uh, that's the one with the lion, right? Yeah, yeah, the big uh, the lion, the lion roar. head that comes through the circle and gives a big roar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, they yeah. they've created um and produced a lot of very uh, classic, well known movies. So um, right. just to name some big movies and television series, um, the James Bond movies, um, of course, Rocky, uh, the Hobbit series, those three movies. Um, oh, the Hobbit! In, wow, in terms okay. of uh, some of the television shows, Fargo, which is currently on Netflix, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, um, those are kind of some of the the bigger television shows um, that they currently have. And mm. uh, the big news is that, of course, before MGM was acquired by Amazon, um, in order for them to make money from these TV shows, they were licensing them out to Disney Plus and Netflix and Stan and Foxtel and all of these different platforms. So, a lot of these movies, such as the James Bond films and The Hobbit and Fargo, uh, these are all currently on, on Netflix and Disney and, and, and other uh, streaming services at the moment, um, usually under between six and 24-month contracts. Um, but as soon as those contracts end, all of those movies will be coming off those platforms and going exclusively um, through Amazon Prime Video, which now owns that film studio. So, um, mm. 
very interesting uh another kind of uh milestone in this uh in the streaming wars i guess as as uh the the, the market kind of gets consolidated and and these streaming mm. services start to buy assets and control different parts of the the movie and television market and then of course producing their own content but amazon's not doing a whole lot of that um at the moment yeah. but I think, uh, sorry, I think you bring up a, a good point there with what you just said. And this goes back to what we kind of talk about right now with with the consolidation of this space. One of the most important things to do right now is own the assets, buy the assets. Mm. I think that's what um, Bob Iger will go down in history for uh, when he was the CEO of Disney. I don't know. He was criticized by because he was just focused on acquisitions. He mm. would just make acquisition after acquisition. Um, and acquisitions are, uh, what are they classed as? Inorganic growth yeah. in the investing world. And people are always like, oh, you should focus on your own business, make organic growth and that sort of thing. But I actually think that was the, the smartest moves of Bob Iger's career is to, is to make the moves to own the content because he could see all this coming. You can clearly see that the most important thing if you're an entertainment company is to own the franchises, own the content that people really like to watch. And that's why Bob Iger went through with Disney and bought Marvel, uh, Lucasfilm, uh, was it 21st Century Fox or whatever it was Mm. off of uh, Rupert Murdoch. Um, And I, I think- Going back, yeah, what you said, thats you've actually absolutely hit the nail on the head. And clearly, this is backed up by what Amazon's doing right now with MGM. Get your hands on the content. Own the content. Don't just own the rights to the content for six months or 12 months or 24 months. Actually own the content. Um, yeah. And that I think that's really the- I think that's the competitive advantage in this space is who owns the content or who can create the content- that people really want to watch. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I I think this is smart by Amazon. Definitely. And the thing about movie content in particular, not so much, or still TV content to a a certain extent, but prior to the internet and prior to these streaming services, the value of that content after box office, after it initially released at the cinemas, was tiny compared to what it is now. And of course, movies and television shows would have been licensed to to network television to, to air on TV um, afterwards mm. and people still bought DVDs. But the value of those movies now that people can have a wide catalog of, of, of content to watch um, is massive. So yeah. owning those studios like Lucas for Disney owning like Lucas films and, and Marvel and, and then making that huge merger. Um, yeah. I mean, those were moves done in the very early days of streaming service before Disney plus even existed, but it may be what makes them really, really valuable at the end of the day. Yeah. So it is very interesting. Mm-hmm. I had one other thing on Amazon, yeah, which, uh, is uh, related to this whole uh, licensing and, and buying of assets here. Um, Amazon is actually uh, looking to make a bid for the Women's FIFA World Cup <laughs> streaming rights, which is wow. uh, really fascinating because, of course, these events are typically purchased. The rights are typically purchased by a television network, right? The, yeah. Typically, I mean, you watch something like the Cricket World Cup or whatever it is and and it'll be Channel 9 in Australia or Channel 7 in Australia that owns the rights to it and is streaming it everywhere. Um, mm. But this year, Amazon's going to try and make a bid. So, um, this uh, event is actually held in Australia in 2023. So, oh, cool. um, 
that's why it kind of came up on my uh, Australian news this morning. And uh, they will, of course, be competing against all of the uh, TV networks in Australia. So Seven West Media, 10, SBS, Nine Entertainment and Foxtel are all trying to make a bid for the streaming rights to the Women's FIFA World Cup in 2023. Mm. But Amazon's going to have a crack to hold it exclusively on Amazon <laughs> Prime Video. That's really interesting. Which is just a strange world, right? It, it's, it, it, it is, it's very weird. Um, but it makes sense, right? What, what, why sense. would sport be excluded from 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 uh, the streaming services? Yeah, uh, especially when a lot of them are doing extremely well right now. And I mean, Amazon, they have the money to do it. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was just thinking. That's what I was just thinking. They have got the money. And I mean, this is this is strange because I guess um, you know you've got your sport streaming <laughs> service in Australia, which is Ko, right, and and it's just exclusively sport. And then you've got your Netflix, which is just exclusively like entertainment, you know, movies and mm-hmm. TV shows and whatnot. But I don't think you see too much crossover of streaming services actually televising sport. Uh, I guess even Disney, they have ESPN Plus, which is a sports dedicated service. Yeah. And then they have Hulu and then they have Star or uh, sorry, then they have Disney Plus. Um so this is I think this will just be cool and I hope I actually want to see this happen because I think it would be a cool experiment. How does it work with Amazon, you know, you I guess this is this is just going to go on Prime Video. Yeah, um, I guess so, yeah. I I, I don't I, unless they're building something else specifically for it, mm. um, maybe they do want to create a sports streaming service or something, but um I mean this would be really interesting because yeah, you're right. You don't normally see a, a big streaming service in the hunt for sports kind of things. Um, and and I tell you what, the Women's FIFA World Cup, that is a big deal. Yeah. There are going to be a lot of eyes, a lot of eyes on that uh, on that World Cup. I actually didn't know there was in Australia in 2023. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's, uh, awesome. that's exciting. It's, Might have to go go along to a few games. There'll be some flipping high-quality soccer, I tell you. Yeah. The, the funny thing about this whole thing is – of course, let's say Netflix had gotten the rights to, to I don't know, some big event like the Australian Open, for example, and you, ha- yeah. you had to pay, you know, you had to have a Netflix subscription. So you have to pay $10 a month to go and watch the tennis if you don't have a subscription. That doesn't seem as intrusive as if Channel 7 was like, yeah, we, we've got the tennis this year, but you have to pay $10, $5 a month to watch it. <laughs> like, mm. like, I feel like the streaming services, because there's already... It, it, it's already assumed that you pay for the services or the, the movies and the content that you get. I feel like it's people who are more okay with paying than they would if channel seven or channel 10 or a free to air channel all of a sudden had an aspect where you had to pay. <laughs> it, it, it just seems like I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't pay for something like that, but I'm willing mm. to own a couple of st- different streaming services from dedicated streaming uh, company. So, I don't know. I don't know mm. if you feel like that. And I'm, I'm interested to see whether Amazon, uh, how do I say, I, I wonder if Amazon's just going to do this mm. just as an experiment because obviously, like, they've got the money. They they could they could buy 7 West Media, 10, <laughs> SBS, 9, they could buy Foxtel, they could buy all of them. They could buy the <laughs> companies if they wanted to. Um so I wonder if they're going to say, you know, we are going to buy the Women's FIFA World Cup. Um, we are going to buy the streaming rights to it as an experiment. Or I wonder if they're still going to to view it as 
uh, you know, ROI, you know, we're only willing to bid this amount. And, you know, if Seven West Media bid more than that, then they can have it. I wonder if they're, they're going to actually, you know, have a you know, kind of kind of like a cap on what, what they pay for it, uh, where, yeah. they, where they could be beaten by a Nine Entertainment or a Seven West Media, or whether they're just going to put their foot down and go, no, nah, we're going to buy it and we're going to test this thing out because it'll still be peanuts. I mean, even if they grossly overpaid for the streaming rights of the of the World Cup, I think it'll still be peanuts in the grand scheme of things for Amazon and Amazon Prime Video. Yeah, I, I honestly have, obviously I have no idea like what kind of bid they would have to make for this and also what mm. how that can compares to other really big events like say something like the Olympics or or the the the, the men's yeah. cricket world cup or you know so, some of these events that are just obviously huge just um, enormous yeah to what extent i don't know like where the women's fifa world cup fits into that so i don't know um how much of a bid it is i'd love to know hopefully we get to find out but sometimes with these deals you never really get to see what the actual bid was but um, yeah, it, it, is, it is interesting. I, I assume it's kind of an experimentation just to see like, do people actually come on and sign up? And if they sign up for the World Cup, do they then stay or do they do they discontinue it after the World Cup is finished? I guess it is really just mm. a big experiment. And um, I guess we'll, we'll find out if it works. We're going to see more of it in the future. That's for sure. Um, but yeah. there'll be a strange world where uh, every sporting event uh, we, w- we usually watch for free on Australian free to air, for example, be a strange world to see all of those events no longer available on those on those uh, free to air channels. If that was the case, imagine if the football, <laughs> imagine if the football yeah. got snapped up by Netflix or something. That'd be crazy. That would be insane. That would just. I feel like that would just end Channel Seven <laughs> if that happened. Yeah. True. I mean, to to be honest, I think now that it's more normal, it, it used to be so abstract. People pay for TV. Mm. You know, it used to be that one rich kid yeah. in your neighborhood <laughs> that would have. But now it's like everybody pays for TV. Yeah. And now I think that's become more. That's becoming more normal for people to just be like, oh. Of course, I have to pay for Netflix. Of mm. course, I have to pay for this high quality TV. And I think because that's becoming the normal, the uh, free to air stations they just have they've. I just don't see them having much of a chance in the future, um, no. unless they do something similar. Because it's like a vicious cycle. Um, they don't charge, so they have to obviously put a lot of ads on, uh, which means that you know, first of all, nobody wants ads. Everybody hates ads, so it makes their their proposition, you know, less uh, less enticing. Mm. And then they've also got less money at the end of the day so they can produce less high-quality stuff. So that's just a further incentive to go away from them. And it's just kind of, kind of like this vicious cycle, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, but some, something like a Foxtel or a Netflix or Amazon Prime Video just doesn't have to worry about. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Mm. Well, that's pretty much all I had for that story. Uh, where should we... Yeah. Where do you want to go from here? Um, I wanted to bring up... This, just because I think it's interesting, uh, Dutch court rules that oil giant Shell must cut carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 in landmark case. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of just, there's not too many details here. It just says here that from the article, a Dutch court on Wednesday ruled oil giant Royal Dutch Shell must reduce its carbon emissions by 45% by 2030 from 2019 levels. That's much higher. That's a much higher reduction than the company's current aim of lowering its emissions by 20% by 2030. Hmm. 
Um, so there you go. They went through uh, the Dutch courts and they have been ordered that they must do more. So it says the landmark ruling comes at a time when the world's most uh, the world's largest corporate emitters are under immense pressure to set short, medium, and long term emissions targets that are consistent with the Paris Agreement. The climate accord is widely recognised as critically important to avoid an irre- irreversible climate crisis. Shell's current climate strategy states that the company is aiming to become net zero emissions by 2050. I don't understand how you can do that when you just <laughs> when you're an oil company. Yeah. But anyway, um, with the company setting a target of cutting its CO2 emissions by 45 percent by 2035. Um, last little bit: the lawsuit was filed in April 2019 by seven activist groups, including oh. Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace on behalf of 17,200 Dutch citizens. Court summons claimed Shell's business model is endangering human rights uh, and and lives yeah, by posing a threat to the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement. Wow. Yeah, there's a funny comment you just made about how do they get to net zero? Like, if, by 2050, yeah. we will no longer be in business. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how they... I, look, I know nothing about this net zero emissions and what that even means for a business. Do they... Um, like how they offset that? Do they have to do some good They're just going to gonna like buy climate it? credits. Yeah, so they have to do some... <laughs> they have to do some positive... They're going to they're start buying credits from um, from Tesla. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, so I mean... Yeah, I mean, it is... Uh, it, yeah, it's, a, it's it's fascinating. I think we're going to see more of this, obviously. More mm. places around the world being very uh, forceful on um, what businesses can do um, and, and can't do. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah hopefully, hopefully we see some more renewable companies um, up and coming and, and mm. co- forcing some real competition against the oil giants because it's one thing for, for us to rely on... Uh, you know, governments making changes. It's another thing if if the alternative um, energy sources are just better, and people, it's it's just, the market just naturally works towards those areas. Mm. Obviously, it needs to be a combination of both. But I don't like relying on government doing things. So um, yeah. I, I hope to see a lot of uh, really good innovation in this space to 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 help mm. businesses do better. Yeah. I think you're right. I think, yeah, I, I don't I don't like to... It's like Warren Buffett said in his most recent uh, annual shareholder meeting. You know, he doesn't want to be reliant on Anybody. the kindness of, you know, even Berkshire's closest friends. Yeah. You just want to be... Self-sufficient. You, you, yeah, you want to be self-sufficient. You don't... Even, even in this, you want... Uh, for an for an example like this, you don't want to rely on the government changing the rules. Yeah. Because we know that, you know... Governments can sometimes, a lot of times, be persuaded to not change the rules. Yeah. So, really, in these sort of instances, you just want you want the economics to win. Yeah. That's really what you want because it's it's like um, you know if you put a tax on tobacco, then there are less smokers. I mean, that's just a fact because the economics dictates it. I mean, economics works. If you tax the things that are bad and you incentivize the things that are good, then you get more good stuff and less bad stuff. That's just how economics works. So, you definitely do want in the case of renewables, yes, it's nice to get uh, government support and that's obviously going to be a big part of it um, to make it more normal. What you really want is you just want the economics to work out because as soon as the economics work out, and I think it's, we're pretty much at that tipping point now where with renewables, the economics do win. Um, as soon as the economics works, then it's 
bang, it's just like that. Everybody's changing because for businesses, even for governments, that remember governments are still trying to spend as little money and make a lot of tax revenue and blah, blah, blah. It's still all economics in terms of a government. The government's probably the biggest example of economics. Um you know, economics wins. So. Yeah, and, and often the economics might not work for companies that um, are, are producing energy in a, in a say, through through oil or, or through coal because there's a huge cost of transforming their business model. But the economics might work for a new business that doesn't exist yet, that's getting fresh money, mm-hmm. that doesn't have a bunch of infrastructure that would need to be adapted or, or go to waste. Um, or, and they, or they can just hire new employees that, you know, that will work directly into their business rather than having to reshape their workforce. So you'll often see new companies come through first rather than older companies changing. Um, Kind of like, I guess, what we're seeing with Tesla at the moment, whereby a newer company that's starting from scratch on electric vehicles in a way has an advantage over businesses that are producing combustion engine cars and would have to change all of their infrastructure, all of their physical assets around to, to be able to, to make electric vehicles. So mm. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting situation. Yeah, very interesting. All right, should we move on? Uh, yeah, I thought I'd chuck that one in because it's kind of like, um, because this is the first time, you know, it's a landmark case. Mm. The, the, the comparison I make is kind of like, you remember the first, it was like the first time that marijuana was legalized in a state. Mm. And it, it just takes that first case to happen for it to start happening more and more and more. Um, so it'll be very interesting if, you know, this landmark case in Holland actually leads to more and more and more cases similar to this, I guess. Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> One thing I did want to talk right. about a little bit earlier, yes. but um, I, uh, I I forgot about it. Um, uh, Jeff Bezos was... Uh, was was uh, lost his top spot for 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 oh, well yeah. he lost it for a little while he he's back up the top but um, yeah. Bernard Arnault uh, became the world's richest man on Monday um, and he is of course the CEO of Louis Vuitton which is a luxury mm. fashion brand that was founded in 1987 um, the company in 2019 uh, generated 50 billion euros in revenue so massive corporation uh, it's currently valued at 325 billion dollars and uh so it's not anywhere near the size of amazon i believe i believe amazon's way bigger than that um but he does own a much bigger stake than than jeff bezos Uh, does in uh amazon so um arnold owns a 46 percent stake in the company and interestingly it's mostly indirectly so he actually owns a company called Christian Dior um, and they own a 42% stake in Louis Vuitton. So that's how he gets oh, of most course. of his stake. And then he also owns 6% directly. Um, so right. um, massive shareholder uh, in, in yeah. the company owns, well, half of it. Um, and uh, his net worth has rocketed over the past year. So his net worth in March of 2020 was $76 billion. It is now at $186.3 billion, um, which is Whoa. well over a 100% increase. Um, and most of that Sheesh. has been driven <laughs> by the fact that Louis Vuitton has risen 100% since the March crash, as I said, with a mm. valuation of $325 billion. So there you go. That's crazy. Amazing. But is, that's, isn't that the case though? Um, it's, it's really just dependent on who's stock is skyrocketing at the time. I mean, yeah. <laughs> because there was the time where Elon Musk was number one yeah. and it's because 
Tesla's stock price had rocketed and he got that new tranche of his stock options. And then we'll get another time where Amazon will skyrocket out of nowhere, go up like 20 or 30%, and then it'll be Jeff Bezos that's the richest man. And then obviously we get Bernard Arnault, who um, Louis Vuitton goes up like crazy and then all of a sudden he's the richest. It's just very interesting how these, these lists, that you know, the, the world's richest people, it, it's just going to bounce around, particularly at the top, it's just going to bounce around between who whose company's stock <laughs> is is performing the best at that time. Yeah, it's actually so true because obviously a big part of the, the growth of those stock prices is going to be the fundamentals of the business. But also on top of that, each business, whether they're going through a short-term negative period or a short-term positive period, will see fluctuations in their stock price that is kind of what I would suggest, say is outside of the true value of the business. So whether Amazon yeah. makes an acquisition and the stock goes up 5% and, and, uh, or, or, or Tesla's really hot in the news or, you know, Elon's tweeting a lot. So, and they, or something, and, and the stock is just kind yeah. of moving around a lot. It's going up, it's going down. It's not really settling anywhere. Um, yeah, you do get these, uh, big changes. And speaking of big changes, I mean, um, Bernard was the richest person on Monday and then a day later he was not. Um, so Jeff Bezos oh, what, really? is, uh, is back at the top spot. Yes. Yeah, so Amazon, um, performed a little bit better this week oh. and as a result he's back up but only by a hundred million wow. only a hundred million dollars that's all just only a, a hundred just a smidge just a little bit of pocket change um, it's just funny numbers isn't it yeah it's it's ridiculous right we're talking about a yeah. hundred million dollars as uh as being what is it less than a one percent change it's it's insane ridiculous it's, it's like hey can i just have like one of those million dollars <laughs> <laughs> i mean you can keep the other 99 just i'll just have one yeah, it is insane at the top. It's it's just numbers that you can't even fathom for one person. And I mean, it. I say this all the time. It's not like they've got however many hundred and something billion dollars in their bank account. It's all tied up in stock. It's just because they've they've run their company, and their company has been extremely successful. And because they've, you know, Jeff Bezos is the founder. He's been it. He's been in it. You know, he had it. However, whatever percentage ownership in Amazon. Um, and that would have been worth a hundred bucks at one stage. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just because now over time he's built that business, um, that it's become such a, a massive company that that's why his, his, uh, his net worth. So, but it is crazy when you start thinking about those numbers. I mean, just in the billions of dollars for one person and you just could not spend that amount of money. Yeah, for sure. But, um, I, I think that's why I, and I think that's, why it's really important, I think it's a good thing that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett do that giving pledge where mm. they try and get those big billionaires that just have have started companies and they just have heaps of stock that's worth a hell of a lot of money. They try and get them to commit to, you know, when you pass away, sure, give away however much you want to your your, sibling, your siblings or your family and your children and whatever, but can you also commit like half of what you've got to some sort of charitable cause? And, uh, and I think it's good that they do that. And I, th I think it's good that people keep signing up for that as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think you need a combination of both because charitable organizations are really good at injecting capital into certain areas immediately and getting help to mm. people who need it right now. You know, say the obvious example, um, diseases in Africa, for example, that shouldn't just shouldn't exist. Um, but then, mm. of course, I, I think it's important not to discount the amount, the amount of value in, in something like an Amazon, I think. Or, or money going into these businesses that create a ton of value and actually improve a lot of things for 
for society. So you want a combination of both, right? You want mm. you want people to be heavily incentivized to to inject billions of dollars into businesses and and try and spend billions of dollars to innovate and create things that are going to be valuable for us in the future and then mm. use that excess wealth that they have to to get some help to people right now um, through mm. the taxation or through charity, um, I yeah. think is, is kind of the two ways that money goes that way. But one thing I found interesting, I was just looking at the list of the, the richest people. And uh, if Google had been founded by one person, which is the case with a lot of the richest people at the top. So you have Amazon founded by Jeff Bezos and Facebook by Zuckerberg. And I mean, of course, these businesses were founded by like multiple people really, but they have yeah. one name to it. There's like, yeah, one central figure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if Google had been that case, because Google was founded by two people, Larry, uh, Larry mm. Page and Sergey Brin. Um, yeah. If they had been founded by one person and that person had the combined wealth of those two, that person would be worth $203 billion and would be by far the richest person <laughs> at the moment. So wow. that gives you an idea <laughs> of that. Um, crazy. Google has two in the top 10, each worth over $100 billion. Jeez. Jeez, jeez, jeez. Yeah. That's insane. Right. So they must... So. They must still hold all basically like all of their stock then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They uh they no longer work at the company, those two. Um mm. but uh, yeah, I have retired. Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> on a beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. All right, should we um should we get into some Q and A? Do you wanna should we spend maybe yeah, ten or twelve sure. minutes going through some some Q and A? Because I feel like we've uh We've done a few episodes where we've only done one or two. I think we should we should dedicate a, f- a bit more time to All get right. through some of these because we do have a lot. And uh, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, otherwise, we're never going to get through them all. Um, mm. I did see an interesting one pop up. I'm trying to see if I can uh, find it. Where should we go? Did we talk about this first one already? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay, um, maybe I'll read this one to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks, as always. Under what circumstances would an equity incentive program that ultimately dilutes shareholders not be a red flag? So, what circumstance would it not be a red flag? Uh, I have one such instance where this is the only hair on it and I'm not sure how bothered I should be about it. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit off air a couple of weeks ago. Just remind me, equity incentive program for like a, a CEO- Yes. Yeah. Exactly. This 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 is not the like the employee um, equity programs, is it? No. Well, I mean, businesses will usually have both of those, but I think what's most important, I think, for us as investors, is to look at the 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 board of directors, look at the management team, um, Mm. and see how they're being compensated. And an equity incentive program would include um, earning stock as awards for meeting certain metrics. Um, and of would course, would include stock options too. Um, I, I, guess, I so. guess it would. Yeah, it, it would. I'm not quite sure of the technicalities, but we'll just assume um, by by the nature of the question that it's 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 clear it, the the question's more about I guess dilution. Um, I suppose. Well, I think this is obviously a big thing uh, with Tesla because um, I can't remember the exact stats, but if Elon Musk hits every one of the twelve tranches of his uh, stock comp. Uh, yeah, stock comp uh, program, then he's going to own like a massive more chunk of Tesla by the amount of shares or stock options that he'll be able to exercise and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so, I guess you're right that there is dilution um, 
And, you know, it's not just the CEO. There's also, you know, top executives that uh, get, you know, awards in these kind of ways. Um, I think it just comes down to analysing whether, you know, if, if that equity incentive program is met and the CEO or the executives get all the shares or all the options or whatever the equity incentive program uh, entitles them to, even if that causes all of that dilution that you're seeing, are you as a shareholder still going to come out on top? Um, For example, the one I think of is Apple. So Apple, they do the restricted stock units um, and those restricted stock units get awarded to Tim Cook if the total shareholder return of Apple skyrockets, you know? Mm. So you can say, okay, sure, Tim Cook, for example, might get 5% of the whole company, you know, he might, it might dilute us by 5%. However, if in order for him to get that 5% extra ownership through all this new stock that's being issued and given straight to him, if that means that we get, you know, um, our total shareholder return is like 50% per year for the next 10 years, um, then you just got to balance it out and say, well, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm going to come out on top uh, in that case. So, I, I definitely understand where you think dilution is definitely can be a red flag and, you know, um, that, that's definitely a thing. But I think it's just mm. worth factoring in, okay, they need to be uh, incentivized, but what do they have to do in order to get that stock, in those stock options or whatever? And will we benefit from, will we as shareholders still benefit? Yeah, um, definitely. Does that is that a good way of thinking? Yeah, about absolutely. It? And I, I think it's important that to remember that there's there's a balance that's going on here. So if they do pay equity compensation, yes, you you are being diluted, but the business also doesn't have to spend cash that they can use to invest in their business. So it kind of uh, frees up capital and it's it's um, much more interesting in particular for businesses that are short on cash, say a Tesla, for example. Um, yet you are getting, yes, you are getting diluted, but at least they're not having to pay a cash, a significant cash compensation to, to large executives. But really the question here is, is what are they doing to earn it? And are their incentive incentives correctly aligned? So you want to have, so you want to have the earning of stock awards to be tied to things like the return on invested capital to the performance of uh, growth of cash flow, so the growth of revenues, or the the growth of some sort of metric that is really really important um, for for that particular business. Um, mm. That's what you want to see. Um, and the other thing is, I always like to see that the management team is still more incentivized based on their ownership of the company compared to their compensation. So, for example. Um, I want a CEO that, you know, if the CEO is earning 10 million a year in compensation, I want to see that they own 80 to 100 million in stock so that they're going to make more money from their ownership by just growing the business like a shareholder than from doing what is necessary to satisfy that year's compensation. Um, Because compensation, obviously, you want it to align the shareholders, uh, to, to align management, but the ultimate aligner is if they are a big shareholder and a lot of their wealth yeah. is in the company and their wealth is on the line. Um, so, that's ultimately what I want to see. But, yeah. Imagine if you could, to become the CEO you of, say, Apple, say, Tim Cook, we're going to offer you the 
the the job of CEO. But in order to become the CEO, you have to buy Apple stock. We're not giving it to you. <laughs> Imagine if that was like they're putting their own money at stake and buying the stock. Um, and then from there, they had to they had to you know work to increase it. Then they'd have a massive interest. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it, that's why I really like founder run companies because not only is it their company, but they have a lot of stock in the company, so they're going to yeah. care deeply. And the best compensation plan, I mean, the best setup for management is where the compensation plan doesn't matter because the CEO is a massive shareholder. So it doesn't even matter if the compensation is bad because they're not going to be incentivized to satisfy it if they own a bunch of stock and they'd be putting that at risk to satisfy it, if that makes sense. Um, The worst case is a CEO that has very little stock in the company, the bare minimum. So every company has a minimum. Usually it's like three times their salary or something very small. Um, the worst is a CEO that has the bare minimum and the compensation plan is is set up to, you know, based on like one year total shareholder return. And then you have something like a Starbucks where they just take on a bunch of debt, do a bunch of buybacks and say, look, we return 10 billion to you. Give me my 30 billion, $30 million in compensation. So that's the worst case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a few things to think about on that, on that question. We spent a long time on that question, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully we answered it well. Yeah, I, I kind of, um, uh, I kind of made a mistake here. I said we'd answer more than two questions, and then I spent. That's half okay. Of our time. We still will. <laughs> we still will. Um, I'm going to ask this one. Hey guys, uh, what do you both think of the Filltown approach to stock valuation? It seems a little bit too simple, and I'd be keen to hear your take on it. Um, hope you are safe given the new cases in Melbourne, Hamish. <sighs> yeah, thanks for the reminder, whoever you are. Yeah. <laughs> no, still going very safe, very, very safe. So um, that's okay. Um, Australia is doing you, quite you well. You don't leave your house. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. I didn't even know there was a lockdown on last time. So um, yeah. I looked at- Hamish, yeah. hey, it's bedroom, kitchen, bedroom, kitchen, kitchen, living room, bathroom, bedroom, yeah, it's very, very little movement. I'm a very, very simple person. <laughs> um, uh, but what do you think about Phil Town's stock valuation approach? Yeah, I think, okay, here's my thoughts on it. I, I think that it is a really, really good way to under, to get an entry into valuation, to understand valuation at a basic level. Um, I don't think it, it, I think it is too simple to, to come up with an accurate valuation on most businesses. You can probably get away with it in some circumstances, but- I think going through the process of, of learning what Warren Buffett teaches, which is very much estimating future cash flows and basing uh, value on the total amount of capital or cash that can be returned to us um, and, and spending a lot of time figuring out what is reasonable for growth in the future rather than just relying on past performance. I think that's where you're going to really start to to get good at valuation. But Filtown's methods are an excellent introduction. I can't discount that at all. Um, Filtown mm. was the way that I got into valuation um, because he, he makes it very simple. It's it's you know it's 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 very approachable. We take this earnings figure, we look at some past growth, we project similar growth in the future, we figure out what the stock price will be in the future, and then we work back from there. And that's a really really foundational way to understand valuation. And um, yeah, I think it's really valuable for, for people to learn it that way. I liked your little pun in there as well. What was my pun? Phil Towns is very good. I can't discount that. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, no, I, I think you're bang on the money. But I think the reason you say that it's a little bit too simple and I think that he, co- I think he knows that. 
And I think, to be honest, I think Phil Town would go, when he's making investment, he would go much deeper yeah. in terms of valuation than what he just teaches in the books. However, I think he balances the simplicity of the approach by introducing the concept that you only buy at a 50% margin of safety. Right. Um, so, I think he goes, you know, cause you, you could get a roundabout figure that's quite that's a little bit too simple that gets you maybe within 30% of the actual intrinsic value. But if you take 50% off of it, you're still fairly safe. Um, but, yeah, that's that's what I think. But, yeah, I, I think... I think that you should learn, definitely learn that approach and mm. practice it, and then learn, you know, discounted cash flow proper with yeah with cash flows. Um, you can even do. He also teaches now a, a ten cap, yeah. um, and then the idea is not to just put all your eggs in one basket. It's not at all to rely on this one valuation that gives you one number and then you cling on to that and that's the only number. The idea is that you kind of put it through different valuation models um, and then you get a few different numbers and then that kind of gives you more context. You know, you might get a 10 cap that says this, discounted cash flow that says that, um, 50% minus margin of safety field town method that says this. And they're all kind of within a 10% range of, or a 15% range of each other. And you're like, okay, well, I guess if I take into account all three, the stock is, it's not fairly valued at, you know, $100. It's probably fairly valued somewhere between, you know, 90 and 110. Intrinsic value, you can't just put a single number on. It's more like a range. And you go, okay, if it's fairly valued kind of at around 90, 100, $110, then I'm going to get a good margin of safety if I can buy it under like 70 or $60 or something like that. Uh, I think that's a better way. That, and that's a way that I've changed. I used to just be like, do the Phil Town method, get a number, and then just wait for that number. But since I've learned more, of those strategies now I, I i i i do that differently yeah definitely i i think i think a lot of what phil town teaches is really really good foundational understanding for for, for valuation and um yeah i i i'm happy yeah. that phil town exists <laughs> he does what he does very very valuable should we do one more? yes um all right where should we go what should we do oh do you want to open a can of worms <laughs> depends what kind of can it is <laughs> Do you, do you see the question? I know I'm looking exactly at? what you're talking about. <laughs> or should we skip that question? Um, I feel like we. I feel like if I wanted to answer that question, I want to give it a bit of time so that I can okay, fairly okay. explain myself and not in like a okay. minute. So we'll save it. Okay, sure. All right. Now everyone's gonna be like, "What is? Yeah. <laughs> what a cliffhanger!" Uh, how about this one? Hi, guys. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are on a question I've been asking myself. As a relatively young investor, I'm still looking for quality businesses with buying opportunities, hence holding mostly cash in my portfolio. What is the minimum percentage return I should be looking to achieve overall? Uh, at what point does it become more effective to put all my money simply in a market tracking index fund? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, for me personally, if I'm looking at individual business opportunities, then the minimum return I'm looking for is 15%. And even on top of that, yeah. as we just spoke about, we're adding a margin of safety. So really, we're, we're targeting much higher than a 15% return with an error margin of a margin for error. And in the event that that those errors do occur, we would still try and make that 15%. And the reason why I try 15 
to target 15% is because, I mean, if you look at index funds historically, and that's really like a no effort required investment, historically, they've delivered between, you know, six and 8%, maybe 10% over some periods, or maybe, you know, 12% over other periods. So 15% is kind of high enough above what you can get for doing no effort, um, that it's worth doing the research, but it's not so high that there is an absolute lack of opportunities. There are very little opportunities at a 15% return, I think, right now. Um, but uh, as Buffett said in the annual meeting, environments, market conditions can change very, very quickly. And uh, what we're seeing now in, in the market with prices very, very high may not be the case in a very short time. So um, I target 15% and uh, I, I still put money into a market tracking index fund as well, regardless. I always have that as a foundation of my, my portfolio. Do you have any, any thoughts on yeah. this? Um, to be honest, I probably can't add anything to what you just said. We pretty much, our thoughts align pretty much exactly. I was just going to say that, yeah, you know, ETFs, market tracking in S&P 500 or ASX 200 over time um, will probably get you about 8 to 10% per year. Uh, eight, yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, six to ten percent is probably right. Six to eight percent over in the states and in Australia, somehow we've outperformed. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you want to be targeting at least fifteen percent, in my opinion. Otherwise, it's like, well, you know, I'm, I may as well just take the easy approach. I don't want to sit here and read all these annual reports that take me, you know, <laughs> ten hours. I'm just going to kick up my feet and just buy an index fund and be done with it. So. You know that that's. I think that what you say is right. If you if you target if you're wanting to be an active investor, you should probably target you know 15 percent or more. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's just you may as well just be a passive investor and uh, and go play tennis <laughs> and, go, and go play tennis. And on that note, we'll wrap it up there for today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, as always, if you do have more questions, we are always welcoming more questions um, or even news topics or anything like that that you want us to talk about. You can head over to the YouTube version of the podcast at youtube.com forward slash the young investors podcast. Just click on the latest episode, go down to the comment section and leave your questions and news topics there. Um, thanks, Brandon, as always, for joining me. And uh, thanks, ShareSite, for sponsoring. Head over to ShareSite.com forward slash young investors if you want to get four months off a yearly subscription and you'd also be supporting the channel. Thanks to everyone who has used that ShareSite link and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Sweet. See you guys.